Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. On this episode, the tables are turned and I'm the one being interviewed by Becky Gillespie of the School of Travels podcast. I wanted to share this episode because I've been getting a lot of questions about my activism and my social justice background. And this conversation goes all the way back to how my social and political consciousness was originally raised growing up as a white kid in the suburbs of the United States and how my awareness was initially raised around the African-American struggle and the Native American struggle and different anti-colonial struggles around the world and how that shaped my academic pursuits and ultimately my professional work in the nonprofit advocacy space. And all of that was way before the location-independent entrepreneurship path and the nomad lifestyle that I ultimately pursued. But we talk about how I made that transition and how I brought those values into the business and how my partners and I work to enshrine them in the foundation of our company so that as we grow the business, we'll be continuing to affect positive change in the world. And we talk about how you can do that as well. So without further ado, here's me being interviewed by Becky Gillespie of the School of Travels podcast. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. This evening, I want to set the scene, listeners. I am in my cabin on the Nomad Cruise with one of my new friends from Nomad Cruise 10, Mr. Matt Bowles. Hi, Matt. Hey, Becky. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming to my cabin and um, sipping wine with me. We are having a wine-filled evening on a beautiful cruise boat after a wonderful day in the United Arab Emirates. So super excited to be here with you. Yes. Thank you so much. Have you been to the United Arab Emirates before? I have been to Dubai for a short visit, so about four days, mm-hmm. and that was probably about four years ago now. Oh, great. This is my first time. 
I haven't stepped off the ship today after a late night last night and some Game of Thrones viewing today. So I am going to say tomorrow I've been to the United Arab Emirates. You will have been indeed. So yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East region. I spent the most time probably in Egypt. I was there for almost a year in 2014. And then I've been to Palestine a couple of times. I've been to Lebanon and then I've been to... Morocco as well in North Africa. And then I've been a little bit to the Gulf. So just short trips to Dubai and then Doha and Qatar. So good to be back though. We're on the Nomad Cruise and we just did Jordan, which was my first time there visiting Petra and then going back to Dubai tomorrow. So it's fun to be back in the region. Yeah. This is my second time in this region as well. But as I said, Dubai, excited to finally get out of the airport. So I wanted to have you on Matt because I've spent more than two weeks now hearing stories from you here and there, and you have traveled quite extensively, and you're also from the U.S., and so a lot of my listeners are from the U.S., and you've been on some programs, especially like Remote Year, you had told me, and The Nomad Train, and I think the listeners would be really interested to hear some of these travel experiences you've had, what you've learned. Sure, yeah. I, well, and you and I share the a uh, little bit of the Ohio background. I went to college in Cleveland. John Carroll University, so I have a little bit of the Ohio connection, and uh, I've actually lived in different places around the U.S. growing up. I was actually born in the Midwest, I was born in Chicago, and then lived a lot on the East Coast, and grew up there, went to high school, middle school and high school in Buffalo, New York, in a suburb outside of Buffalo, actually, and then college in Cleveland, did my grad school in Washington, D.C., then I moved out to L.A., and it was about the summer of 2013, so now almost seven years ago, I left the U.S., got rid of all my stuff, got rid of my car, my apartment, and all my stuff, and I started traveling the world full-time, and I have had no base. I've been a full-time itinerant nomad since 2013, and since then, I've probably been to about 65 countries. Wow. I think you are probably the person who's been a nomad, a full-time nomad, the longest on this podcast. No pressure. But I first want to ask you, what did you study? Nothing that in any way relates to what I'm doing now, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, So I did a bachelor's degree in sociology, and then I did a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. And then I worked in the nonprofit advocacy space professionally at a non-governmental organization in Washington, D.C. That's my entire work experience all the way up to the age of 30. And then when I was 30 years old, one day there was a whole big shuffle in the organization I was at, the management changed. All of a sudden I found myself on the outs with the new management. One day, unexpectedly, I walk into work, I get fired from my job. Oh. That was at the age of 30. So all of my academic and professional experience have been in this one particular area. Then one day I get fired from my job And all of a sudden, my head is kind of spinning around, and I'm like, and on that very day, it was actually a pretty crazy, dramatic day because I got blindsided by this. I had no idea what was going to happen. Get fired around 2 p.m., had to get out of the office by 5, and I had to give them all my stuff, like my my phone was a company phone and everything. So I'm walking out with no phone. Like I had to drive to the Verizon cell phone store to buy a phone so that I could call my mother to tell her that I was fired from my job. I had no phone on the drive. So on the drive, I can remember thinking to myself, okay, what am I going to do now? You know, my head was kind of spinning, but I was like, this, I think is really the kick in the pants that I needed to go in a different direction in terms of my life. And so I said, you know what? I'm actually not going to go and apply for another job. Instead, I'm going to figure out how to start my own business. 
and I'm going to try to create a more autonomous life for myself where I don't have a supervisor and I don't have a boss and I'm not reporting to someone that can just fire me on a whim because they don't like me. I want to get out of that situation and create more control over my life. And there was only one major problem, which was that I had absolutely no idea how to start a business. Wow. But what a brave decision. Were you angry with your bosses at that point? Or had you been I was, I was frustrated. I felt it was unprofessionally done. I was a senior level manager in that organization. And there was only two people that were above me, the deputy director and the executive director. Neither one of them was there when it was told to me that I was being let go. So I asked, there were only my peers that were there, like the HR director. And she was able to tell me, oh, I said, why? She said this and this. I responded to each of them, refuted them. She's like, well, I don't have any more information, but the decision's been made. So for me at that point, like I was more hurt, I think, than angry was the emotion I was feeling. But then I was also feeling like I was, you know, because that hits the ego. It hits all kinds of stuff. You know, it's a very emotional thing. And I was like, well, I could like demand to speak to my supervisor and ask these questions to them. But then I was like, you know what? If people don't want me to be here, I'm not going to fight to keep my job at an organization that doesn't want me here, Mm -hmm. especially because I was at a managerial level. Right. So I'm like, you know what? I am not going to do that. I'm just going to spend the afternoon negotiating a severance arrangement with them, right, to resign and then get a severance, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know what, if they don't want me here, I'm out. That's fine. So I didn't do any of that. And I, I immediately started thinking forward, like, what am I going to do now? And then say, how can I do this as an opportunity? Like that, a kick in the pants that I needed? Because I feel like a lot of people, if we're at jobs that are anywhere from mediocre, like, okay, to fulfilling, then we're usually oftentimes just it's very seductive to stay there even if we know that we could be doing something more amazing it's very seductive to stay there if it's not like really freaking bad you know Mm -hmm. and so this was kind of i think the kick in the pants that i needed and if this didn't happen maybe i'd still be there today so i think about that and i'm actually many ways now looking back like incredibly thankful that i had that transitionary moment but what i did was after i bought the cell phone and called my mother and told her i was fired i then literally that day went from the verizon store to the bookstore And I drove to Barnes & Noble and I went to the business section and I started reading books on how to start a business. And then each day, since I didn't have a job, I drove to the bookstore and didn't have an income. So I wasn't buying the books. I was just sitting in the bookstore reading them. (laughs) And I would just read books on how to start a business. And then one day, this was 2007, I walked into the bookstore and each day I would go and I would look at the new business book section. And one day I walked in and there was a new book on the table called The 4-Hour Workweek by Timothy Ferris. I picked it up the day it came out. And I sat there and I read it the day it came out and I said, that's what I'm doing. Wow. And can you give us a little bit of background on the four-hour work week in a nutshell, just for people that might have never heard of this? Yeah, this was really the seminal, pivotal work that for me turned on the light bulb or the aha moment that the concept of location independence and the freedom of mobility is a currency that is at least as important, if not more important than money. Okay, so if you're thinking about the concept of lifestyle design, the three currencies are control of time, control of place and mobility, and then, of course, money, right? Because you have to finance it, right? right? But most people, when they're building a business, they only build it and they only do a business plan that relates to the revenue or the financial modeling of the business. How are we going to create a business that's going to make us money? What the four-hour work week 
taught me to add to that was how are we going to build a business since I was starting from scratch that's going to facilitate my dream lifestyle and allow me to have total freedom of mobility so that I can travel the world and have total control over where I spend my time, who I spend it with, how frequently I travel, how long I stay, and allow me to design my dream lifestyle. I want my business to facilitate that, not just to make me money. That was the game-changing revelation. Yeah, I remember reading that book like, oh, back in 2009, I want to say. And I remember that in the very beginning of the book, they say the people with location independence and the freedom to do that, they're actually wealthier than the richest CEOs who can't move around like that whenever they want. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to do. I came across a second problem, which is once I figured out what it takes to start a business, I realized that I didn't have most of the skills required to start a business. Did you have a lot of savings, if you don't mind me asking, when you were fired? I had negotiated a severance with mm -hmm. them. So yeah. they were going to continue to pay me a certain amount and cover my health care for a certain amount of time and stuff like that. So I had a bit of a runway and I had some savings as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had been investing in real estate on the side while I was at my job. So I had learned about investing in rental properties and I had friends that were coming to me and asking me, how are you doing that? How are you investing in rental properties? And so I would show them, I'd be like, oh, I'm just doing this. Do you want to like buy the same stuff that I'm buying here? It's what I'm buying. And I would help them to do that. We're buying out of state rental properties and that kind of stuff. And through that process, I was studying the real estate brokerage model of the companies that were helping me to buy these rental properties. And I realized that they were all making commissions, right? Or referral fees on the properties that I was buying, but I was not paying them. Because in the United States, the seller pays 100% of the brokerage fees. The buyer pays nothing. And so then I was bringing my friends, and then they were making commissions off me and my friends. But I, we weren't paying them. So like, that's cool. Like, they're providing us value. They're helping us to get these access to these properties. And we're buying these rental properties. And so I understood the brokerage model, mm -hmm. right, and how it worked. And I understood that there was value, that people wanted me to show them how to buy these rental properties. And so that was my business model idea that I said, I understand this product and I feel like, and I know there's demand for people to, that want to buy this. If I can just simply get on the brokerage side of it, I can just continue helping my friends buy rental properties, but now I can get paid for it because I'm a real estate brokerage and my friends still don't have to pay me because the seller pays all the brokerage fees. So I can just keep helping my friends buy rental properties and they don't, I don't have to charge them anything. I was like, that sounds like the best business model in the world. And you're going to start getting paid. Yeah, you getting paid. what you're doing for free. Yeah, so that was the business model. I reached out to two people that had the skills that I didn't have. And I was able to somehow convince them to leave their jobs and come start a business with me. Wow. Which to this day, I think is the best sales job I've ever done. And they did. And, you know, we founded Maverick Investor Group 12 years ago. And we've been doing the exact same thing for 12 years, which is helping individual real estate investors buy rental properties that are already cash flowing, which are usually single family homes, actually in markets like Ohio, right? And they're already fully renovated. They already have a tenant in place paying rent on a long term lease. They already have a local property management company that's in place on the ground who's collecting the rent and handling the maintenance and all of that. So you can buy properties in the most investor-advantaged U.S. real estate markets from anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world. And you don't have to be the rehabber. You don't have to be the landlord. You don't have to live near the property. But you get the benefits of actually owning the deeded real estate, the hard asset. 
that's amazing that you were able to have that insight that something you were already doing, you just started studying and decided and learned how to change yourself into a brokerage. What was that process like? How long did it take to become the broker? Well, the thing was with that, I mean, that was part of when I started doing this research and realizing that I was limited because in order to have a real estate brokerage, you have to have a real estate broker, Mm -hmm. right? And in order to be a real estate broker, one of the qualifications Mm -hmm. is that you have already had two years of full-time work as an active licensed real estate agent before you can qualify to become a broker. So there was no way that I could have become a broker in less than two years. Even if I got my agent license immediately, I couldn't have started a brokerage. And so one of the business partners that I recruited had those qualifications and he came in and was able to be a corporate broker immediately. And then my other business partner I recruited was actually my best friend, Valerie, who actually did her graduate work with me and worked in the nonprofit space also. Oh, But she and I had worked together on so many things and we have like completely complementary skill sets. Like I'm a really strong where she's not and she's really strong where I'm not. And so we knew exactly how to work together. I knew I needed her on this team to make it work. And plus I trust her like more than anyone in the world. So she was willing to come and then Mark was willing to come and we put, you know, met out in Las Vegas and founded the company in 2007. Wow. And that's at a time when a lot of people, I mean, the four hour work week was out, like you said, but a lot of people, yeah, were not, this whole community did not exist. No, 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 no. Network didn't exist. Not at all. Not at all. And so, yeah, so we founded it in 2007 and this is actually an important nuance, I think as well. I've been location independent since 2007. Right. Mm -hmm. That's now going into my 13th year of being location independent. But for my first six years of location independence, where I could have been anywhere, I chose to be based in Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. So I was based in L.A., even though I could be anywhere, but I still would exercise my location independence. I could travel when I wanted. I could go home for Christmas and spend a month with my parents. That's such a valuable, such a, you can't put a value on that. You really can't. Most people can't do that. They Mm -hmm. only get two weeks of vacation and then have to choose between family, you know, extended family, immediate family, or like vacation in Hawaii or whatever. Right. Whereas I could just be like, okay, great. I'm going to just go hang out at my parents' place for a month. I can work from there. I can spend quality time with them. So I was doing that, but I wasn't doing the international itinerant nomad thing until 2013. Okay. As we worked up to the time you were 30 and you got fired, had you done a lot of travel up to that point? So I did not do a lot of international travel as a kid growing up. I had been out of the, by the time I was going into college, I had been out of the country, maybe, you know, like to a Caribbean Island. And then I went to, my dad took me to London for like a long weekend. And that was like it for international travel. So junior year of college, I studied abroad and I went to Ireland for a year and I studied at Trinity College in Dublin. And then my roommate and I, who was also an Irish American, who was there studying at Trinity on the same program, he and I took the month of the winter break and we bought a Euro rail pass and we just went all through Europe on the train. And that was magical in every single way that anyone that's ever backpacked through Europe. The, for the first time, you know what that does. It's just your eyes just light up and you're blown away with how magical and special and extraordinary that is. And that was just a, a feeling that I will always remember, like what that was like. One, living abroad on my own. And then two, having that ability to travel through those different countries and experience those things. 
But with that said, after that, well, actually, I did a year in Ireland. And then the next semester, I studied abroad again. And I did a peace and conflict resolution semester program while I was a senior in undergrad. And we studied the Israeli-Palestinian conflict the entire semester. So part of it was in D.C., Washington, D.C., but part of it was in, we also went to Israel, we went to the West Bank, we went to the Gaza Strip, and we went to Egypt. So that was the semester program. So that was actually my first time in the Middle East, which was 20 years ago, 1999. Wow. It was my first time in Egypt, my first time in Palestine, my first time in Israel, I've been back to all of those places since, but that was my first time. And that was obviously a completely different experience than going to Europe. I was going to say, what were your impressions? Did you remember any just like eye-opening moments when you were there? Maybe they all were. No, 100%. I mean, one of the things is that you start to understand very clearly what the actual realities are of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which are very thoroughly obfuscated if you simply read about it through American newspapers and media. And so when you go there, it's very clear what the situation is, that you actually have a settler colonial situation. We have the Israeli government, which is funded and militarized by the American government, which is actively colonizing the Palestinian people, continually moving settlers out, taking land, they have the largest, you know, military in the region, one of the most powerful militaries in the world, including a nuclear arsenal, and they're using it against the civilian population of Palestine, which has no protective institutions of a state, and they're setting up a matrix of control and apartheid system, settler-only, bypass roads, and all this kind of stuff, which looks eerily like South African apartheid. And so you start to see that when you actually go there yourself, you can be like, oh, this is what a refugee camp looks like that gets bombed and then they don't allow medical aid to come in. And this is what 30,000 people per square kilometers in a bombed out refugee camp looks like. And then this is what a settlement looks like with settlers swimming in a swimming pool when the Palestinians don't have water to drink. And then you start to understand the power dynamics and the actual you know, realities on the ground there. And all of a sudden you start to question things that you were taught in your home country or mainstream impressions in the American media about things like that. And so for me, that was a really, really, really important experience because now I had just been in Ireland for a year, right? Mm -hmm. And I had, so for me, it was actually really interesting because in my undergrad, I was studying sociology, right? So all this study abroad was during undergrad. My advisor in undergrad was Native American. Okay, he was Lakota. And when I went to Ireland, he and I started doing uh, research. He was supporting me doing research on the history of Irish colonialism, which the British military is still occupying the northeastern six counties of Ireland today. Right? Ireland was Britain's first colony, and the north of Ireland remains Britain's last colony. They're still occupying it to this day. Right? So we did a look at the British colonial processes in Ireland compared with the British colonial processes in the United States over Native nations. Right? So we were doing that. And then when I went to Palestine... Then we started to do that comparative analysis and look at the colonial processes over native nations in the U.S. and the Israeli colonial processes over Palestinians, right? And we started to do all that. So it was actually a really good, for me, like kind of comparative context where I was able to understand it within that framework because a lot of the mainstream stuff wants to take it way out of that context and either talk about it as like a religious conflict that goes back decades between Muslims and Jews or two competing national groups that just can't get along or you know, terrorism and, you know, this, I mean, all that kind of stuff, it just takes it completely out of the context of colonialism, right? And so for me, 
having studied the situation with Native nations, having studied the Irish colonial situation, to then walk in and be able to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in that context was really, really important. But to be able to see it, to actually stand in a Palestinian refugee camp and see it, I mean, you can't put a price on that. You can't read anything equivalent to actually seeing it yourself. So for me, that was just amazing. And that experience inspired me to do my master's degree in international peace and conflict resolutions. So that's why I went in that direction. Okay. I was going to ask, like, what inspired you in the first place to, to study that in universities? It, was it because of, or the peace and international conflict side of things? Was it because of your advisor or... Yeah, you know, I <laughs> I had no idea what I wanted to do when I walked into university, really. I was like, mm, should I major in, like, in high school, I was a hip-hop DJ. And that, to be honest, actually, if you really want to go back, that honestly, I would credit hip-hop music, politically conscious hip-hop music, as raising my social and political awareness as a white kid growing up in almost entirely white suburbs. How did you find this music in the first place? That's a good question. I mean, I think other kids had it. Like, they were finding it. Like, what was happening? I mean, now we're going back, you know, I mean, I was in high school 1991 to 1995, okay? And which, by the way, also happens to be the golden era of hip-hop music for any fans that are listening. I mean, that's just, I mean, the, I got very lucky. I mean, 90s hip-hop is like, is, you know, is it. But when you started getting to, like, 1989, like that kind of era, you started to have things break out. So you had Public Enemy come out. You had Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, that came out. Public Enemy's song, Fight the Power, was in that movie. From that, I was able to get their album, which was called Fear of a Black Planet, and talked about all this political stuff. And so I started asking questions. Why had I never heard anything that these guys were talking about? Why am I learning maybe a little bit about Martin Luther King? Why are we not learning about Malcolm X? Why are we not learning about the Black Panthers? Why are we not learning about all? Like, what are they talking about in here? And why haven't I heard it? And that started me asking questions. Did you talk with your family about this at home? Were your, were your parents very open about discussing all these issues yeah, at your table? I, you know what's interesting, which is amazing, by the way. Like, one of the things I'm so amazingly proud of my parents about, like, my parents are both very well educated. They both have master's degrees, like all that kind of stuff, well-read but they don't have a political activist background. Like that's not a space that they were in. They weren't involved in that community when they were coming up. And so some of these things that I was asking them about, they were not very well versed in that stuff. It was interesting. My uncle at the time who's since passed away, he actually started telling me about, like I started asking him and all of a sudden he was telling me this story. I remember I did this high school interview project where I had to interview family members or like people about, I forget the exact scope of the project, but I did about civil rights era stuff, right? Like the African-American struggle and civil rights era stuff. Mm -hmm. And my uncle started telling me this story about how he was actually walking in Harlem the day that Malcolm X was assassinated and saw the people pushing the gurney with Malcolm X on it down the sidewalk to the hospital, which is what actually happened, right? Like his people put him and just physically like rushed him themselves, not even in an ambulance down the sidewalk. So he saw this happen. So he's telling me this whole story. And then I asked him follow-up questions, and he was, like, telling me about people like Stokely Carmichael. I'd never heard of Stokely Carmichael. I started looking, you know, who's Stokely Carmichael? And I started looking into the Black Power Movement and all this kind of stuff. Why have I never heard of any of this stuff? So my parents were not necessarily very well-versed in a lot of that stuff. And so what happened was I started asking questions at school, this kind of stuff. 
So when I got into college, again, I was thinking, oh, maybe, you know, I run a DJ business. I'm this, uh, you know, because I started, I, I parlayed the hip hop stuff into a mobile DJ company in high school where I was DJing like proms and weddings. So you had so your that. own business before. I did. I did actually. Yeah. <laughs> so then I go into college. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just major in business and communications and whatever, because that's kind of, I guess what I do. I wound up in a sociology class and that class started teaching me about race, in a, you know, class stratification, gender inequality, feminism. Like I'd never heard any of this stuff before. We didn't get any of that in high school, right? I mean, I knew, I was like, why has no one taught me this? Like, this is really interesting. So then I took another sociology class and then another one. And then I started doing all this stuff. So I took all the classes I could on like race and ethnic relations, feminism, native nations, and like all of these, that, that was, I was very interested in that stuff. And then, as I said, then it went into like Ireland. So I'm of Irish heritage, right? I'm Irish American and I didn't know most of the stuff about the history of Irish colonialism, right? And all of the, you know, extraordinary things that, you know, were inflicted upon the Irish by the British colonial processes and stuff like that, right? And so I started reading all this history and learning this stuff and studying in Ireland, you know, and so that put me on this path. And then I realized about the Palestine situation. And the thing about Palestine, too, that not only is it an extraordinary situation of just like radical power asymmetry between those two groups and what's actually in the extremity of the human rights abuses that are being inflicted by the Israeli government. But the reason why they're able to inflict them with such impunity and commit these crimes with so little ramifications is because the United States government is their that's colonial patron, right? So Israel is a client state of the United States at this point. So the U.S. gives them $5 billion a year of military aid which of course is required to be spent on U.S. weapons manufacturers, buying weapons from U.S. weapons manufacturers, which of course fund the political campaigns of both the Republicans and the Democrats, which is why their policies are almost the same with regard to Israel, right? And so I felt it was very incumbent upon me, and there's a lot of human rights abuses that go on around the world, but I felt it was incumbent upon me as an American citizen, since my tax dollars were so highly funding this particular situation, that it was really important for me to get involved and to speak up about it and to raise awareness of what I had seen and what I had realized and that kind of stuff. So I did a lot of Palestinian human rights organizing work in the United States and, you know, got involved in a lot of those kind of struggles. So it really just kind of led me through, you know, that. And then I wanted to study it at the graduate level. And then I got involved in doing nonprofit work, which was actually more around domestic civil liberties abuses because 9-11 happened in 2001, of course. And then after that, there was all of these very draconian policies that came down in the United States that were everything from racial targeting of Arabs and Muslims and South Asians to these just massive surveillance programs and all these other, you know, types of civil liberty abuses. And so I actually got hired to do domestic organizing work to try to, you know, defend civil liberties in that particular era. So that's that was the path that I went on and that was all of my life's work right up until I got fired from my job. Wow. I'm interested in like this transition you made into being autonomous and having your own business in real estate, which you'd already been doing yeah. on the side, because it sounds like you have a real passion for political organizing and activism. And I wonder, do you do anything? I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single-family homes, 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Thing now, or did anything carry over after you found your own freedom? That's really important question. And it was, this is a major thing that I struggled with in a huge way. And I think a lot of people do when they're going through any kind of life transition. So I think mine is a really good example, right? Because I had major questions like, am I selling out? If I go the business route, am I abandoning the values and the passions that you're observing, right? In terms of my political convictions and the values that I have and the things that are important and the struggles that I want to contribute to, am I abandoning that if I go and start my own business, right? And then what does that mean for me and my identity as a person and my whole value grounding and everything, right? And I think that people experience those types of questions in any major life pivot that they're going to go through, right? Because our identities are really built up into whatever it is that we do because we put so much time into it, our job, our academic work, whatever it is, like that's entirely you and you're really good at it and that's who you are. And then if you're going to make a major pivot in a totally different direction, that's going to throw you into a huge identity conflict and it's going to prevent a lot of people from doing it. And so for me, the way that I processed that was, one, I recruited my best friend Valerie to be my business partner who did her master's degree with me, who did Palestine activist work with me, who did human rights work in the north of Ireland with me. We were bringing international observer teams over there. And like, I mean, she, so she was like so grounded in exactly the same stuff that I was. And we said, we had this discussion and we said, how do we keep our values and our grounding if we're going to go in this direction? And so basically what we decided was, first of all, we can continue to contribute voluntarily to all any activist causes we want, but it'll just be on our own terms. It's not an organization paying us to do it and controlling the way that we do it. And second of all, when we build this business, let's institutionalize a component where we commit to donating 10% of our net revenue before we managers take anything out for ourselves. 10% of all of our net revenue will go off the top to causes that we care about and that are important to us. And we were never able to donate money before because when you're working at a nonprofit, you're not making money. You're basically donating your time for a very low salary and you're making an important contribution to the world, but you're not donating any money because you don't have money to be donating. But we said, okay, we'll, we'll now start donating money. So it gives us an incentive to make the business do well because the better the business does, the more money gets thrown off to these causes that are important to us, right? So now we're funding, we're financing the organizations that we care about and we're still contributing in that way. In addition to the fact that we're invited to sit on boards and to do, you know, various different things like that and contribute in those ways now, you know, and so forth. So that was very important for us to figure out how we can keep that grounded and keep those values while going in this direction. 
I'm really glad you delineated that because I didn't know that aspect of your business. Do you, is this something you do privately with your founders, the donations, or do people that work, that come to your company know that their money is going to these causes? So we select the causes ourselves internally, which we like to vary them up Mm -hmm. in different ways. I mean, like literally, you know, we sometimes will just do like a snap decision on something like when one of these hurricanes came through and wiped out, you know, blew the roofs off orphanages in Haiti. And we had connections down there. And they said, the hurricane blew the roof off this orphanage in Haiti, $7,000 will rebuild the entire thing and get these kids at home again. We just like, on a day's notice, just fired seven grand down and rebuilt an orphanage in Haiti, right? So sometimes it'll be like off the cuff stuff like that. And then other times it'll be like, you know, projects that we're connected with or aware of, or we know people that are working here in port. We funded like Palestinian girls sports teams, you know, I mean like cool, important stuff like that, different types of things. So like we've contributed to different causes, but we do put that on our website in terms of like some of the organizations that we've contributed to and the whole piece about giving back that we do that. That's definitely a public thing on our website because that's very important to us in terms of who we are and why we do what we do. That's great. Thank you for explaining all of that. And I'm glad that you've been able to keep your values in your business as the you know main driver of your lifestyle now. And also just like give people these ideas of how they can make transitions, like you were saying, and make the life that they are hoping to do. And all the things that you learned from your travels early on, I'm sure like I'd like to ask how they helped shape you later when you did leave the States. What made you finally go international? So that's an interesting question. My impetus for leaving the United States, I wasn't actually planning from the beginning to just become a full-time nomad indefinitely. That was not the plan when leaving the United States. What happened was I was in a relationship Mm -hmm. and I had been living with my partner for almost four years in LA. It's one of the reasons I was in LA. I was in a relationship. We were living together, and she was doing her PhD in Egyptian history at UCLA. She's Egyptian American, and one day she comes home and she's like, "So, I've got to go to Cairo for a year to do my dissertation research." And I was like, "Cool, I'm location independent. I'll go to Cairo for a year." So, cool. <laughs> yeah. So we did that. And we got rid of all our stuff, got rid of our place, sold my car, put my stuff in storage. And the plan was to go to Cairo for a year. So all I knew at the time is that I'm going to be in Cairo for a year. Although we did say, you know, if we're going to get rid of everything, you know, we don't need to be in L.A. this summer before we go to Cairo. We could go somewhere on the way to Cairo for three months because anywhere in the world is pretty much cheaper than LA anyways. <laughs> Plus we could see another part of the world for three months. So we were like, where's the number one place in the world that we both love to live for three months. And at the time we picked Buenos Aires. Wow. I love Buenos Aires. Because <laughs> of course, Argentina is directly on the way to Egypt from LA. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Some minor detour. <laughs> so we did that. We got rid of our stuff, went to Buenos for three months. And then we went to Cairo for, we ended up being in Cairo for nine months. And she finished her dissertation research. And then when she was done with that, we basically said, well, we don't need to go back to L.A. right now. You have a year to write your dissertation and you've got all of your research with you. She's like, true. So we're like, how about we do this? We pull out a world map and we said, what are the top five locations in the world 
that we'd most like to live. And let's go just rent an Airbnb for two months in each one. Wow. I so, feel like if you filmed that commercial for everybody, ever thinking of this lifestyle, they were like, sign me up now. What, what do I need to do? That was literally it. So we were like, Rio de Janeiro, Cape Town, South Africa, Barcelona, you know, and we just went. You did it. Yeah. Wow. And that ended up being about a year and a half travel there. And we were all over the place. I mean, it's, you know, went out of Chile, went to Sicily, we're in Lisbon, you know, Portugal, we were all over the place. And doing like one to two month stays, you know, in these different amazing places. I was in Malta for a month in the middle of the Mediterranean, like really epic spots. And then she and I eventually broke up. So that relationship ended. And when that happened, I said to myself, whoa, first of all, in total, it was a seven year relationship, by far the longest of my life and the most serious so that was a massive transition for anyone in any sort of situation getting out of a seven-year relationship. But for me also, the thing was we had been traveling at that point for, you know, over two years, right? And we were itinerant for the last year and a half of it. And so I had really actually become quite lonely because although I was with my partner, with one other person, we were not actively plugging into social communities in the places that we were. We would just like go and we'd like do a lot of work. And then we'd like go out to dinner together. I haven't talked much about this on the podcast. It really happens when you're with one other person and a couple. People like do not interact with you the way they will if you're by yourself. Well, I mean, you can make a proactive effort, but we did not, right? Mm -hmm. We were just like, okay, let's just do a bunch of work. And then we'll like go out together and like see this thing in the city or like go to dinner or like do this thing. And so I think it was our own fault, but we socially isolated ourselves, I think, when we were traveling a lot and we were moving around and that kind of stuff. But you don't have to sometimes make an effort when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. I've found traveling. Mm -hmm. People come to you and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, but <laughs> yeah. when you're with a couple, you do have to make an effort. You do. And so and I hadn't. And so that actually built up, I think, a lot of loneliness. And so then when I was when the relationship ended, I was like whoa, like, I don't even have anybody around me to give me hugs and all of that. And I just got out of a seven-year relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, now another major life transitionary moment, right? Yeah. So I'm like, first of all, top priority, I need a community. Stat, like, immediately. Like, I need to get a lot of hugs. I need to be surrounded by people that are willing to care about me and socialize with me and hang out with me. Like, I need that right now. But also, I really love this travel thing. I really love seeing these different places, having this cultural immersion, seeing different parts of the world. Like This is so unbelievably exhilarating. If only there were a way to do both. And so then I remembered that somebody had shared with me an ad for a program called Remote Year, which is a company that organizes a 12-month program. They now actually do shorter ones as well, like six months and four months. But when I did it, the only program that was a 12-month-long program where they bring together 40 to 50 people, all of whom can work location independently, who don't know each other from the start. And they bring them together and facilitate a 12-month experience where you travel the world together. You live in a different city each month on four continents over the course of 12 months. Wow. So you're with the same community for the whole year, right? So mm -hmm. in that sense, it's like, and it's even more intimate and intense than if you were just like in a city where you're like, you see your friends on the weekend or once every couple of weeks. 
you see these people every day, right? Because you're living in the same place, you're traveling the world together, you're doing social events together, but you have a whole community of like 40 to 50 people and you're able to just go around the world and have the most epic adventures. You can also leverage the money too with like groups and hotel rooms or like... So yeah, so remote, you're the company, it's, you pay a flat monthly fee and they mm-hmm. take care of all of your accommodations, your access to a co-working space 24-7 with high-speed Wi-Fi, so you always have that to work whatever hours you need to all of your international airfare, and then they have full-time staff on the ground, local people that are born and raised in these places to speak the local language and everything else, facilitating your experience on the ground, activities to do. It's all taken care of. Yeah, and you mentioned you went to Marina Bay Sands with Remote Year. So that, was, so that was a side trip, right? right. So, so that's the other cool thing. It's like we were based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It was our first month. And then you'll have, we had maybe like, 10 people in our group that were like, hey, the Formula One Grand Prix is right over here in Singapore. We can get a flight for 40 bucks, you know, to go to Singapore. We'd be able to see Singapore. We'd be able to go to the Formula One night race, you know, and that kind of stuff. And they were like, well, if we're going to Singapore, maybe we should stay an extra night. And, uh, you know, after the, because for the F1, I didn't even know, I, I knew so little about the F1 before I went to this thing. I'm not really into cars and car racing, you know, <laughs> but like a bunch of my friends were way into it. They knew all the drivers. They knew all the stuff about the cars. Like, trust me, just come for the event. It's like going to the World Cup. It's like, I mean, they're, they're like, it's just the event itself is epic, but we'll explain to you all the stuff. So I'm like, okay. So I go, like 10 of us go, and it was just bonkers. I mean, it's like, a, it's not just a car race. I mean, it's a festival with all these A-list musicians performing. I mean, it's a massive event, right? But everything in the city is triple the price during the F1, right? So we're like, okay, let's do this. We planned it out. We said, okay, we'll get an Airbnb, and we'll just like, cram like five dudes into like a two-bedroom Airbnb and sleep on couches and pullouts and all this kind of stuff for the F1. But then we'll stay a day after the F1 is done, when the prices are back to normal, and we'll have like, you know, we'll go to the Marina Bay Sands and we'll get a room there for one night. And for anybody that doesn't know, the Marina Bay Sands is the architectural centerpiece of the entire Singapore skyline. It is a hotel and it is the largest rooftop pool in the world. It's basically three skyscrapers next to each other. And across the top of all three skyscrapers is one giant rooftop infinity pool that sort of looks like a boat. And this hotel is not cheap to stay in, but it is like one of the most legendary sort of bucket list experiences to have. Because the only way you can get into that pool is if you're a paid guest of that hotel. You are not allowed to bring a guest. You're not allowed to invite anybody over. You know, we thought, we're like, oh, we'll get a room and we'll invite you guys all over to party at the pool. Uh-uh. You cannot do that. Anyway, so we got a room at the Marina Bay Sands and just, you know, checked in early around noon and just spent the entire day at the pool. You had like four people in a room or something? Well, so we had three people. This is actually interesting. We had three guys staying in a room, right? So we're like, okay, we'll have, you know, two beds and a cot in the room. So we'll have three people split the cost of the room and then we'll just spend the whole day at the pool. We literally check in. They're like, yeah, the rooms include two pool passes. So if you want your third guy to be able to access the pool, it's another $250. Huh. So we were like, I mean, so obviously we split that three ways. We're like, okay, that's the total net cost. Then that's what we'll do. Plus the cost of the room, of course. And so then we called all all our friends. Sorry, guys, that whole pool party idea about us inviting you over here. That's not going to (laughs) happen. But we spent 
from noon until 11 p.m. at this pool, and it is just one of the most insane experiences you will have. Like, I mean, it's just crazy. Like, the clientele up there, the whole scene, the whole experience, it's just bonkers, and you're in this massive infinity pool overlooking the entire city of Singapore, and it's open until 11 p.m., so you can swim at night, and you can just be at the edge of this infinity pool overlooking the whole city of Singapore at night. I mean, it was just... Such a beautiful skyline. On... Real, yeah, it was like entirely worth it. But so that's one example of like epic stuff that you can do. But like we would do stuff like that every single month. Yeah, and leveraging the people you have access to. Because I find it as a solo traveler sometimes that I want to do that, but where are these two other people right. I can find right. that are like valuing that the way I'm valuing that? But with a remote year or something like that, you can find those people. And every single month when there's something epic to do, somebody else put out, hey, who wants to go? You know, we're in Peru. Who wants to go and hike Machu Picchu and do this thing? And of course, you know, a huge number of people will just be like, me, me, me. And then you just organize a group and go. Or who wants to take a side trip to Bolivia and go through the salt flats and do all, I mean, just insane, mind-blowing landscape, right? And if you know, we had eight people, it's like me, you know, so we just go to Bolivia for a week with like a crew of eight people and we just, you know, go through the salt flats and, I mean, really, really magical stuff. And every month, right, we're in Thailand on an island for five weeks and we're, you know, scuba diving and with whale sharks and just, I mean, it was like really, really bucket list caliber stuff every single month. Do you ever get overwhelmed with that kind of year schedule where you're not having this normal LA life anymore? Like <laughs> Monday, like just it's in the one place and you're, you know. I think you can, which is part of the sustainability pillars. You know, there's sustainability pillars for this lifestyle that you really need to be attentive to because it is easy to get overwhelmed and it's easy to get drawn into all the stuff that's going on or have intense FOMO that you can't do everything or because there's epic stuff going on all the time. That's what Nomad Cruises felt like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Every day there's epic stuff happening. That's exactly right. And so you need to be able to discipline yourself and basically say, these are the hours that I need to work. And I realize that there's going to be people doing epic stuff during the hours that I have to work. And I'm not going to be able to do that stuff. But... Whatever hours I am able to do stuff, there's definitely going to be people available to do stuff then too, right? (laughs) And you're not going to be able to do everything. And so you really have to, I think, condition yourself. And it's definitely a mental and emotional and intellectual, you know, and everything else exercise to structure your life in a way that's healthily balanced. So are you getting your exercise and your fitness and that kind of stuff? Because it's easy to just skip on that stuff because there's fun things to do or there's whatever, right? Are you getting your work done? Are you having enough alone time to recharge and do the things you need to do by yourself, right? And people that are especially on the more introverted side of the scale need extra recharging time alone, right? Are they getting that? Are they, you know, all of these different things, like when you're thrust into this, there's so much opportunity and there's so much excitement and there's so many things that are going on that you could participate in at all times that you simply need to have you need to be prepared for that and you just need to have a disciplined lifestyle structure. Yeah. I think it's really important to highlight that for anyone listening going, wow, that sounds amazing, but it also sounds exhausting from time to time. Yeah. So you just have to balance it. You have to know yourself, like how much social time do I want to have? How much alone time do I want to have? How much of these epic travel adventures versus how much work time am I 
eating healthy? Am I getting my exercise? Am I getting enough everything? Hugs from people? Am I getting this? Like all of your human needs, you just, they're all available in this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You just have to make sure that you're taking what you need and not over dosing on one thing at the expense of other needs that you have. Yeah. You also did the Nomad Train this year as well, right? I did. Yeah. So the Nomad Train was really epic. This was a organized group experience where you get to take the legendary Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow all the way across Siberia and in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia and to do it with about 30 other nomads. It's a 14 day trip. So you start in Moscow and then you're stopping in these different cities in Siberia, which are all really, really amazing. So a city like Kazan, which is super majority Muslim, is actually a semi-autonomous region of Tatarstan, which is in Russia, but it's a semi-autonomous region. There's a whole 500 year history of Islam in Russia that most people, I feel like most Americans anyways, don't even know about, right? And there's just these gorgeous, like, turquoise-colored mosques and all this stuff. And we have tours in each place by a local person. So, like, local Tatar people telling us about their history and their culture in this particular region in Russia and all this stuff. I mean, it was just really... And then you're going to Novosibirsk, which is the capital of Siberia and actually has, you know, the largest theater in all of Russia, right? So even though most people know that theater and the ballet and stuff is a huge thing in Russia... The largest theater is not in Moscow or St. Petersburg. It's actually in Novosibirsk, and you get to see that. You get to see the history of this part of Russia. And we went to Irkutsk and then went out to Lake Baikal, which is an extraordinary, I mean, just absolutely gorgeous and amazing place. But it's also the largest, by volume, the largest and the deepest and the oldest lake in the world. Yeah. And so... You just, the, the magnitude of this freshwater lake was just totally extraordinary, beautiful. Got to hike around, get to go swimming and have bonfires out there. I mean, just really, really fun, cool stuff with a really, really neat group of nomads from all around the world. And then we ended in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And of course, if you're there, you definitely want to see the Gobi Desert, which is also just legendary landscape. It's amazing. So we were like going through the Gobi Desert on camels and staying in yurts. And, you know, really, really, really epic stuff. So just an incredible sort of cultural immersion experience. How many people were with you on this trip? About 30. Everybody that went on the train stayed for the Gobi Desert. Uh, And so we had about 30 of us and we were going through and it was really, really neat. I mean, we actually got to connect with some local Mongolians. So the Mongolian nomads, a yurt is like a temporary makeshift movable housing structure, right? So three people can break down a yurt in like 30 minutes and reconstruct it in like 90 minutes, right? And this is where the nomadic Mongolians live, right? I mean, these are the original nomads. These are the OGs, right? (laughs) And of course, they speak no English, but we have Mongolian guides that could translate for us. So we actually get to go into a Mongolian... We were staying in our own yurts, right? I mean, they have like hotel type situations, which are actually yurts you can stay in, which we did the whole time. But we actually have to go into a Mongolian family's actual yurt where they live right and actually see what that's like and talk to them right and then we had our translators translating because they spoke not a word of english but it was amazing because we were all sort of explained to them like we're nomads too but sort of digital nomads 
right? And these are the original nomads, right? <laughs> so we're asking them questions like the ones that people ask us, you know, like as nomads, how do you, you know, create a sense of community and like have, and we're asking like all the same questions that people ask us, how do you find like life partners and meet people, you know, like all that stuff we're like asking them, but like teach us. You Did know, you tell, learn anything? Tell us how to be nomads. What was know? the takeaway from that I mean, conversation? I, think, I, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of it was was the same answers that, you know, that we give people, you know, about how we do stuff. I mean, they, of course, have organized social things where people can come together in the town and have, you know, mixers and stuff like that. And then they can go off on their way and go here and then come together, you know. So, like, they were just explaining to us, like, how their lifestyle works and stuff. But it was fascinating and it was a really cool, like, nomad to nomad conversation. I mean, it was a really neat cultural experience. Sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I hope that other people in the future are going to take advantage of this. I know they will. They've been talking about on Nomad Cruise. For sure. Yeah, it's cool. And you get if you get the 30-day visa to Russia, you can go like two weeks early before the train leaves and spend time in St. Petersburg and Moscow, which are also just two like extraordinary cities. So most of the people did that and we had a blast in those cities as well. Wow. What's next for you? Where would you like to go next travel-wise? Or do you plan to continue this like permanently i don't want to say permanently but location independent lifestyle internationally yeah i mean i've been location independent with no base for seven years now i'm in my seventh year of that so for me that freedom of mobility to travel where i want spend the amount of time that i want there and be with the people that i want like that's an increasingly important thing for me now too in terms of decision making about where i'm spending my time Mm -hmm. is who i'm spending it with right right so on the one hand yeah there's places that i want to see but now I'm structuring that like, okay, of the people that I know, because I now have a pretty expansive ecosystem, social ecosystem of nomads that are location independent and can just make a travel choice on a whim. And so I'm thinking about like, you know, in addition to continuing to plug into these work travel programs, right, which I do, and I plug into multiple ones in addition to remote year, which as an alumni, I can now plug into any of the remote year groups that are currently orbiting around the world and I can just join their group for a month in one city. Nice. It's an amazing alumni benefit. I also have access to the entire alumni network of the 2,500 plus people that have completed the remote year program. So you can pretty much find some of them anywhere you go in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, literally anywhere. You know, I went to, last year I went to Nairobi, Kenya for a month and I was like, I put out a message. I said, anybody going to be in Nairobi? in September and six people are like, Oh yeah, I'll be there. You know, it's really like a six people remote year meetup in Nairobi. This year I was in Accra and Ghana and West Africa, six remote year people there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean like literally anywhere you go, there's people from all over the place. And you haven't even tapped into Nomad Cruise people yet. sounds like. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> Nomad, Cruise, Nomad Cruise people as well. Yeah. So now I'm in the, the alumni networks of remote year. Another work travel program I've patronized is called Hacker Paradise. I'm in their alumni network, right? Nomad Cruise. I've done four Nomad Cruises now. I'm in their alumni network. So now, like, the ecosystem is huge, right? So what I'll do also is I will sometimes also plan my own trips to places that these work travel programs are not going. They don't have a presence there. So, like, West Africa this year, for example, there's no companies that I know of that are currently facilitating trips to West Africa. And I wanted to go, so I thought to myself, which of the people that I know would A, really want to go to West Africa and be passionate about it, and B, want to experience it in the same way that I want to experience it, right? Go for the same reasons and do the same things and, like, really have an amazing trip together. Mm -hmm. And it would be the type of people I would want to roll with in that region, 
you know? Right. And so I just invited, you know, people to go and do that, which might be different from, let's say, the people that, you know, like last summer, I organized a trip to go through the French wine country for a month. So I want people for that that are going to want to roll with me and, you know, went to this festival in Bordeaux and we went through Burgundy and drove the Route de Grand Cru in Burgundy and we just went through just wine tasting all through France, right? So, like, who wants to do that in that particular way? And, you know, it, it would really, really appreciate and love that versus who would maybe want to go to West Africa and, like, you know, really immerse in, like, the music scene and the nightclub scene and the nightlife and, like, that kind of scene there, right? Or, like, so I now know so many different nomads and I appreciate different people. I have different connections with different people on different levels, right, that, like, appreciate different cultures and different places in the world and want to roll in different ways and stuff like that. So I can really kind of architect my travel and, like, create the social communities around the specific places that I want to go, and experience them with people that I really care about that really can, I can really have fun with in each of those places. I can just say from being my, this being my first nomad cruise and this one community I've been with now that the people, the things that you learn from these people that you're meeting, it's just unbelievable, the scale. And as you keep going around year after year, it's such a vibrant and stimulating community that I think you've really shown people in this podcast how they can build a community for themselves if they have this travel curiosity and they want to get out there. 100%. And they can just plug in to one of these programs, right? Like you don't even have to do a 12 month commitment to remote year, you know, and go on something that extensive, like hacker paradise is another work travel program. They facilitate the same thing. I described accommodations, co-working space access. They bring together a community of nomads. They go and experience the place together and you just pay and you show up and there's a whole big, group of people, they know you're coming, they want to hang out with you, they want to explore the city with you, all this kind of stuff, right? And all the logistics are taken care of. And you can literally start with like a two-week commitment. You can just go for two weeks. And so some people will just do it and just dip their toe in. Let me check it out. Is it for me? Mm -hmm. What's this like? What are these nomads like? How does this program work? Like, is this cool? And you're just there for two weeks. I mean, it's nothing, right? And then, of course, most of them come back. And then if you're able to be location independent for a long term, then you can continue to do this as I do and just piece, you know, program after program after program together. And I just hop around the world. And wherever I go, I'm always intentionally, consciously immersing myself in communities of people. Okay, so you're doing it continually. Constantly. And it's either a work travel program or event like Nomad Cruise, Nomad Train, a month with remote year, a month with hacker paradise. It's those kind of organized things. Just like you walked into this cruise and you had a whole community here. You didn't know them before you got here, but you had a whole community that wanted to get to know you and hang out. That's what my life is like all the time in all the cities all around the world. And like you said, if there's an interest you have, somebody else has it probably on that same event. For and sure. it's been, for yeah, sure. this has been an amazing, like eye opening experience for me in that way too. Yeah, I've learned sure. about a lot of new interests and like now I have them too and yeah, things like that. So. For sure. Well, Matt, I could talk to you for hours and hours about all this. You have so many things to teach me and to just teach all of us about your experiences, but I know you want to go to dinner. I'm sure at some point. So we better, we better go to dinner. <laughs> I'm ready. But thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And I know that the, the listeners are really going to appreciate what you've told us today. I appreciate you having me on the show. It was really, really a pleasure to be here. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how 
Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.